Sketch 6 of Zorra Boys at Home and Abroad, or How to Succeed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. Zorra Boys at Home and Abroad, or How to Succeed, by William Alexander McKay. Sketch 6. George N. Matheson, or A Zorra Boy, a Patron of the Fine Arts. The educational power of fine painting is very great. One of the earliest and most lasting impressions of the writer's life was from the reading of the story of the artist and his two pictures. One day, so the story ran, as the artist was abroad, he saw a very beautiful child, and for fear that he might never again see so lovely a face, he at once painted its portrait. This picture he hung up in his study, and the beautiful countenance cheered him in his work, as from day to day he delighted to gaze upon it. He resolved that if ever he had the opportunity, he would paint its opposite, and hang the two pictures side by side by way of contrast. For a long time he could find no face ugly enough, but at last he found it in a hardened wretch, confined for life in a prison cell. There in his gallery hung the pictures, the one a lovely innocent child, the other a hardened profligate criminal. Imagine the painter's astonishment when he learned that the two pictures were of the same person. Vice had transformed the innocent child into the hardened criminal. The lesson was not lost upon me, and I remember well how the description impressed my youthful mind with the awful possibility for good or evil that lies before every young person. Recently I spent a delightful hour in the art gallery of a Zorra boy, and the following lines are written with the hope that they may be interesting and helpful to my young readers. Perhaps no finer collection of original paintings is possessed by any private individual in the province than that of which George N. Matheson of Sarnia is the happy possessor. This collection is very valuable, and it has received flattering notices from the press of both Canada and the United States, and from many prominent artists and art dealers. Mr. Matheson is a son of the late Mr. Donald Matheson of Embro, who for many years represented the county of Oxford in the Dominion Parliament, and the son is characterised by the same suavity of manner that so distinguished his honoured father. He has been for many years collector of customs in Sarnia, and two large rooms of the customs building are devoted to his collection of paintings. Calling on him, I was received with that cordiality with which one Zorra boy always receives another. Having talked over old times, I expressed a desire to see his collection of the fine arts. He was delighted to comply with my request. Entering the room, the first thing to attract the attention is an original painting by Byron Webb, its size being seven by five feet. It exhibits a mountain scene with a stag and some Scotch deerhounds. Just opposite this picture, on the other side of the room, is an Italian scene by Claude Lorraine. The frame of this picture alone costs $250. At the end of the room is a painting thought to be the work of the great Rubens, entitled The Discomfiture of Achilles. It is a magnificent representation of the well-known classical romance in which Achilles, in the disguise of a female, seeks to interview the ladies of the court of Lycomedes, king of the Skyros. Lycomedes suspects his guest and sets a trap to catch Achilles. He puts in one part of the room a basket filled with the most beautiful jewellery, beads, bracelets, rings, etc. Nearby he places a warrior's helmet, and then watches which would attract the attention of his guest. The picture represents Achilles paying no attention to the gewgaws, but greatly interested in the helmet. Thus he gave himself away, and thus the old writer, as well as the painter, teach us that male and female differed in their tastes 3,000 years ago, much as they do today. Lying on a table in this room is a folio of immense proportions, being no less than 33 by 23 inches. It was published in 1790 and contains a large number of pictures by Royal Academy artists illustrating scenes in Shakespeare. 
The author's name is Boydell. Alongside this lie the complete works of Hogarth. This artist was born in 1697, and his works consist of a great variety of engravings representing life under different aspects. One that especially struck me was a series of paintings representing the various steps in the downward career of a beautiful country girl. She came to the city blooming and beautiful as a fragrant rose, but yielding to temptation, she sank lower and lower till her emblem became not the rose in its fragrant beauty, but the flower as it sometimes clings to its stem after the autumn frosts have done their work, decayed, putrid, and loathsome. Mr. Matheson, I asked, what started you in the line of fine arts? Well, was the smiling reply, I think I was born with some taste for the old and the beautiful, but it was a mere accident that led to the development of that taste that now, alone in old age, furnishes me so much enjoyment. I was living in Sandwich and wished to get a watch-chain of a special design. I called at one of the jeweller's shops and told them what I wanted. The man informed me that there were no chains of that pattern manufactured, and the only man he knew who could make one was a jeweller named Thomas Miles, who lived at Port Huron. One day, being in Port Huron, I saw this man's sign, walked in, and met a little old Irishman, who had at one time been a court jeweller. Then and there began a friendship that lasted till death did us part. The old man was a connoisseur in arts, and the possessor of a fine lot of pictures. Here Mr. Matheson, with all the glowing enthusiasm of the ancestral Highlander, exhibited to me his family crest, wrought out of solid gold by the little Irishman of Port Huron. It consisted of a cock perched on a pedestal, richly draped, and attached to a long pin, all of solid gold. On the pedestal is inscribed the family motto, Face et spera, work and hope. Looking towards a quiet part of the room, my eye rested on the beautiful picture of her who, for the short period of nine years, shared with Mr. Matheson the joys and sorrows of life. Her memory is still cherished and her elevating influence still felt. George N. Matheson was born in Embro in 1835. In the eighteenth year of his age, he left home for Hamilton to see Mr. Bridges in order to get a situation on the GW Railway. I went, he says, by the last stage that ever drove between Woodstock and Hamilton. I returned by train, and I sold the first railway ticket ever sold in Woodstock. In 1856 he entered the customs in Paris, thence he was promoted to Woodstock and Point Edward. Since 1874 he has occupied his present position of great trust and responsibility. His memory of boyhood days in Zorra is vivid. He loves to talk of old neighbours and friends, the Guns, the Gordons, the Hodgkinsons, the Youngs, the Kennedys and the Connors. He speaks of the late Reverend Mr. Mackenzie in terms of the warmest affection. I have heard, said he, of my old pastor being charged with neglecting the spiritual interests of the young, but there is no truth in the charge. Well do I remember the little log building where the Sabbath school was held, and where Mr. Mackenzie taught me the catechism. During the summer months, every Sabbath evening, Mr. Mackenzie taught a Bible class in the church. Mr. Matheson speaks kindly even of his old public school teachers, John Cameron, Lachlan McPherson, Nicholson, and John Ross. These men were stern and made a liberal use of burnt leather, but they and others thought they were doing their duty. The age was a stern one. Soldiers were whipped in the army, prisoners in the jails, children in their homes, and why should they not be in the school? I got many a sound thrashing, but I cherish no ill will to the thrasher. He was faithfully doing that for which he was paid, and perhaps it did me good. It was a part of my early discipline. End of sketch six.